You're back with Black Valor. I am your host, Jamie M. Parks, and today we're going to be talking about William Henry Singleton. He was a soldier during the Civil War. As always, just some program notes before we get started. I have a couple things that are coming up. One is going to be uh, interviews with two people I hope to have very shortly. And I will be adding some book reviews to the site. I talked about that during the first podcast, and I'm ready to put some of those book reviews up. Probably the first book review, well, actually it will be two, and it's going to deal with the 761st Tank Battalion. Starting in two weeks after this podcast, I'll do a two-episode run on the 761st and their exploits in World War II. It seems like I've been pretty heavy with the Army, but believe it or not, I will be covering more of the branches soon. As a retired Air Force member, you can be sure I will be covering those events. I've just been trying to pick things that aren't as common in the public knowledge in regards to black military history, but I will cover all time periods, all branches of service. So today, William Henry Singleton he was the first sergeant in the 35th United States Colored Troops. William Singleton was born a slave on 10 August 1835 to Latisse Nelson. Historians believe this birth was actually around 1843. He gives it at different points in his different paperwork, but probably 1843 is closer to when his actual birth was, so he would have been 20 years old at the time he enlisted in the service. Uh, the family was the property of John Hancock Nelson, though he mentions in his autobiography that he was a slave of the Singleton family. Again, historians believe this was a move he made to protect his family, who was still living in the area, and he didn't want to bring discredit on that family that owned him as a slave. He was light complexion, and it was believed that his father was his master's brother. From an early age, William proved to have a determined attitude and he often resisted authority exerted by his masters. When he was about four years old, his master sold him while his mother was out working in the fields. Two people came, gave him some candy and took him and when the family returned, he was gone. They sent him to work for a widow in Atlanta, Georgia. The widow did have a tendency to beat him a lot. So when he was about seven years old, his master had sent him out for some packages. He came back later than she expected he should, and she began to beat him. So he decided that was it, and he just ran away. So at that time, Newburn had more slave and free blacks operating with little oversight than any other place in North Carolina. The legislature had exempted the county from a law that banned blacks being hired out to work in 1794. This was mainly because of the location in New Bern. There was a lot of work that couldn't be handled by the populace that was there, so blacks would do much of that work. Uh, in downtown New Bern, they actually earned the nickname Little Egypt for the large number of blacks that were there. It was relatively easy then for runaways to escape their masters with the help of black laborers and sympathetic whites if they made it to New Bern. A local underground railroad station took advantage of the Noose River 
and the proliferation of black sailors in that area to spirit away slaves to the north. William decided to return to his mother. Fortuitously, he found a man who knew his family on the street. That slave told him to get a ride on the stage, but not tell anyone his name. He looked at a stagecoach, and when he found a stage that was starting to load passengers, he waited until a white lady walked towards it and took her carpet bag, acting as if he was her servant, and the colored driver never questioned them. The lady went along, and he rode with her to Wilmington, North Carolina. At Wilmington, the woman admonished him to forget her and what she did for him. For the rest of the journey, he caught rides or walked, hiding when necessary to make it back to the Nelson Plantation. At the plantation, his mother could not recognize him until his brother confirmed who he was. Still, she had to see a burn scar on his neck where she had dropped ash on his neck before believing her son ran away and returned on his own such a great distance and at such a young age. William hid in a dugout of his mother's cabin for three years under a floorboard until he fell for a trick that drew him out while everyone was supposed to be at church. His master had basically set food out where slaves who were hidden in the woods would come out to grab the food and then there would be people waiting, and he fell for that trick. Once recaptured, the plantation's overseer, John Peed, bought him for $500 with the intention of giving him to his parents in Jones County, North Carolina. Pete told him to get his clothes out of the cabin, and instead William ran off again without getting caught. His mother got word to him that Master Nelson would let him stay on the plantation and work if he returned, so he came back. A short time later, William was sold again to a poor white widow named Miss Wheeler for only $50, and when she decided to sell him, he ran away for a third time. William returned to downtown New Bern and got a job as a bellboy in the Gaston House Hotel. And he worked there for years, or three years, at $3 a week, and they provided food for him. Some of the other black boys who worked with him found out who he was and threatened to turn him in. So he returned to the Nelson Plantation because his mother had told him she was very tired of my foolishness running away and going about the country. He resisted running away anymore and started hearing rumors about an impending war between the North and the South in 1858 or thereabouts. Shortly before the war, William's master gave him to Samuel Hymans. Shortly before the war, William's master gave him to Samuel Hymans, a West Point cadet, as his servant. Hymans had come home for the summer from West Point but did not return because of the stirrings of war. Hymans organized a company of soldiers that joined other companies at New Bern, and they became the first North Carolina cavalry after the opening engagement at Fort Sumter. The regiment remained in New Bern until Brigadier General Ambrose E. Burnside captured the city, and that forced them to retreat to Kinston, North Carolina. William ran away at Kinston and hid it to Burnside's headquarters to offer his services. At first, the Union officers thought he was a spy for the rebels, and they kept him under guard. Shortly afterwards, a man who refused to give his name was brought into the camp. 
William actually identified him as a Major Richardson of the 1st North Carolina Cavalry. Once the soldiers confirmed the information William provided, he secured a position as servant to Colonel Robert Leggett of the 10th Connecticut Regiment. When General Burnside formed a council to plan on attacking the rebels at Wives Fork on their way to taking Kinston, he asked William for advice on the best way to proceed. William actually recommended a flanking movement at Trent River, which was five miles farther than the Noose River, but they ignored his input and attacked head-on. During the battle, in which William acted as a scout and actually had his horse shot out from under him, Burnside's forces were repulsed. Maybe if they listened to him, they would have been able to win the day. Days after the battle, William expressed his desire to fight in the war to Colonel Leggett. Colonel Leggett replied, We never will take Negroes and the army to fight. The war will be over before your people ever get in. William replied, The war will not be over before I have had a chance to spill my blood. If that is your feeling toward me, pay me what you owe me and I will take it and go. He took the $5 Colonel Leggett gave him and rented the AME Zion Church at New Bern to raise and train a regiment of a thousand black men. William gathered the thousand men and drilled them using corn stalks. He offered the use of his force to General Burnside, who politely turned him down, but introduced him to Abraham Lincoln, who happened to be there that day. President Lincoln explained, William and his men were contrabands of war and not American citizens yet, so they could not fight. But his final words were, hold on to your society and there may be a chance for you. William was one of 120 black men who petitioned Secretary of War Stanton to allow colored men to fight. But once the Emancipation Proclamation was signed on January 1, 1863, William and his men anticipated being called to service. It happened a little later on 28 May 1863 when Colonel James C. Beecher, one of Henry Ward Beecher's brothers, took command of his regiment and designated it the 1st North Carolina Colored Regiment. William was appointed Sergeant of Company G. Later, the regiment changed their name to the 35th Regiment United States Colored Troops. Colonel Beecher outfitted and trained the unit before they shipped out to Charleston Harbor, South Carolina. The unit participated in skirmishes and battles in South Carolina, Florida, and Georgia. One of the regiment's most celebrated battles occurred at Olesty, Florida. A skirmish at Lake City, Florida on February 11th forced the Confederate forces in the region to fortify Olesty Station, as it was the most defensible position. Both Union and Confederate forces poured into the area, turning it into a full-fledged battle. In the morning of the 20th, between 5,000 and 5,500 Union troops with artillery attempted to capture the rebels. Throughout the day, the rebels received reinforcements and slowly gained ground and threatened to defeat the Union troops. Union Brigadier General Truman Seymour, commander, District of Florida, realized defeat was imminent and committed his last reserve forces by late afternoon. The 35th USCT and the famed 54th Massachusetts Volunteer Infantry 
made up part of the reserve troops. One white veteran remarked, the colored troops went in grandly and they fought like devils. Unfortunately, the Union Army lost the battle and retreated to Jacksonville, Florida. Members of the 54th actually helped cover the retreat of the Union forces. The Battle of Olustee was costly for both sides in men and material. The 35th lost two officers and 20 men killed with 131 wounded. During the battle, Sergeant Singleton was actually one of those wounded in the leg. Eventually, the 35th returned to South Carolina and the soldiers were mustered out in June 1866. William had raised to the rank of first sergeant by the end of the war. But at the end of the war, William moved to New Haven, Connecticut. The Ku Klux Klan had threatened to kill him if he ever set foot in New Bern again, so he left his family there. In 1868, he married Maria Wanton, and the couple had a daughter. He worked as a coachman for the Trowbridge family for 31 years, uh, six years for one brother and the rest for the other brother. While in New Haven, William became very religious, and after his wife died in 1898, he set out as an itinerant preacher, settling in Portland, Maine. He then married Charlotte Henman in Maine and relocated to Peekskill, New York in 1907, where he worked as a gardener and a caretaker. Throughout World War I, he supported the local YMCA and War Camp Community Service and joined local patriot organizations. Now, Charlotte died in 1926, and William returned to New Haven to be closer to his daughter and his grandchildren. Once there, he remarried a third time to Mary K. Powell in 1929. Wherever he went, William actively participated in the community and espoused his belief in patriotism. He was very proud of his right to vote. Shortly after participating in a Grand Army of the Republic encampment in March 1938, he died of a heart attack. He was in poor health before he went out to support the GAR event, but he felt it was his responsibility to remind everyone that Blacks had participated during the war and fought for their freedom and that of America in general. So my sources for today come from the recollections of my slavery days. It's an autobiography that he wrote in 1922. There's only two copies available, original copies available, but they have been put into a collection by Catherine Mellon Sharon and David S. Solcheski, which I recommend getting. You can follow the link that will actually take you to the full autobiography online. I also looked at Freedom Fighter, which was in the Our State, North Carolina magazine, the Battle of Olesti from the Battle of Olesti organization, and Olesti Battlefield from CivilWar.org. So those links will be on the website. As usual, please provide feedback on how the episodes are going or any topics you would like covered through our website at www.blackvalor.net. Also, you can reach me through email at blackvalor1010 at gmail.com and on Twitter and Google Plus at blackvalor1010. On Facebook, we're at blackvalor. That's all I have for today, and I will see you back here in two weeks.